Hello and welcome to episode 254 of AvTalk. I am Ian Pechnik here as always with Chesner Benowitz. How are you, Ian? We're back on a Wednesday. We're back on a Wednesday. We've been very, very off schedule the last few weeks for a variety of reasons, but we're back on schedule. And yeah, I feel right. How are you, sir? I'm good. I'm good. We're still a couple hours off from our normal recording time because I'm off today and I'm not working so I can record before five. What a day. What a feeling. What is this madness? I don't know, but it's been a week already. Yeah, it's been a week already and it's shaping up to be quite the weekend. Should we start with what hasn't happened yet? I think just to to get it out of the way with. Last week, we talked about Taylor Swift's anticipated flight, and it's still going on. So hopefully, all of this is over and done with this weekend. I cannot wait for it to be over. My dearest hope is that it will introduce flight tracking and being an av geek to a whole new segment of the population. That is my strident goal. But I didn't know that I would still be talking about this. But I stand by what I said last week, where I don't think the flight's going to go directly from Tokyo to Las Vegas. So I'm sticking by that. And I just wanted to re-up my statements on that just so that we can talk about it later on. And done. Done. Well, I mean, she could, you know, Area 51 is probably the next nearby airport with capacity. Could connect down on on Janet. Why not, right? If anyone can do it. Why not? Why not? Let's not feed any conspiracy theories. The other thing that I wanted to bring up from last week is that so many of you sent in heartwarming and funny and earnest stories about how you became AvGeeks that I'm still working through all of them. And I haven't had a chance to really kind of edit them down so that we can present them on the podcast quite yet. So keep those coming. And I'm working my way through through them. I'm about two thirds of the way through them. So those that have come in so far. So please keep them coming. If you've got them, email us at podcast at fr24.com and we'll have those in the next couple episodes to share with everyone. So thank you. Thank you all so much. Last week, we said that it was entirely possible that we could get the preliminary report on Alaska Airlines Flight 1282 by the end of the week. That didn't happen, but it did happen at the beginning of this week. We now have a very thorough preliminary report from the NTSB and weighing in at a whopping 13.3 megabytes when downloaded. That poor NTSB server. It it still has (laughs) not recovered. It's trying so hard. Accident number DCA24MA063, in case you want to look it up, or you could just download the copy of the report that we've linked to in the show notes and save yourself some trouble. But we learned what we kind of already assumed had happened, happened, but we get a lot more information from the NTSB about the life of this particular aircraft. Yeah, a lot more details than expected. Usually these preliminary reports are pretty much, here's what happened. We already know what happened. That, that's typically what you get. And then it says, okay, well, we'll issue a final report and you know, check back in a couple of years, perhaps. We got a lot more this time around. I think this is the most comprehensive preliminary report that I, I have come across. Yeah, absolutely. I think the NTSB knew that there was going to be An incredible amount of interest in this particular report and judging by how 
buckly their website was yesterday. I think they were right. The preliminary report walks through what the mid-cabin exit door plug is, how it comes to be part of the 737-9 MAX aircraft, and then what happened with this specific aircraft as far as the first walking through the accident flight, a timeline of the accident flight, and then the manufacturing of the door plug, as well as the manufacturing of the fuselage, because that becomes a very important point in this particular accident. So let's start with the door plug, I suppose. The door plug was manufactured by Spirit Air Systems in Malaysia in March of 2023. It was received in August of 2023 by Spirit in Wichita. It was assembled onto the fuselage and then shipped via rail to Boeing, who received it on the last day of August 2023. Upon receipt, Boeing goes through the fuselage and makes note of anything that isn't exactly as it is supposed to be. Which these days is quite a large number of items. So what they do is they perform an inspection and they note any defects or discrepancies, according to the NTSB. That's their phrase. And they create a non-conformance record, an NCR. And that non-conformance record stipulates where the part is, what exactly isn't properly done, and what needs to be done to fix it. On the 1st of September, the day after the fuselage arrived at Boeing in Washington, they created an NCR noting, and I'm quoting the NTSB preliminary report here, five damaged rivets on the edge frame forward of the left MED plug, so mid-cabin exit door plug. And the NTSB provides a very detailed photo of this nonconformance finding. Based on the photo, it appears that they take orange tape and put long strips of orange tape on any of these nonconformities. The aircraft was noted, and then Spirit Aerosystems personnel who are in Washington. Jason, I believe you called them the warranty workers. Warranty workers. Yeah, that I believe that's what the reference is to them, that Spirit has so many quality defects coming on its assembled airframes to Boeing that they, Spirit, have to have a team of warranty workers at Boeing's Renton facility to fix what they have already delivered to Boeing and actually take care of that at the factory in Renton with Boeing. Not Boeing workers, but Spirit workers at Boeing's factory working, presumably to fix what Boeing quality assurance workers have spotted themselves. So I'll back up a step and I want to give the NTSB some real credit here for including the photos that describe the issues in the preliminary report. And the photos themselves come from Boeing workers who are noting these defects, noting these findings, and taking pictures of them and sending them wherever they need to be sent, either between different teams or up the ladder or over to Spirit and things like that. And so they were able to collect all of these photos. The NTSB says that documents and photos show that to perform the replacement of the damaged rivets 
access to the rivets required opening the left MED plug. To open the MED plug, as we now know, the two vertical movement arrestor bolts and two upper guide track bolts had to be removed. And then there's a helpful picture of the the MED plug open on that particular aircraft as they work on the damaged rivets. Then, records show that the rivets were replaced per engineering requirements on September 19th by Spirit Aerosystems personnel. Photo documentation obtained from Boeing shows evidence of the left-hand MED plug closed with no retention hardware bolts in the three visible locations. So the photo shows insulation covering the upper left as you're looking from the inside of the aircraft, the upper left guide track. So you can only see where the three bolts, three of the four bolts should be. But the visuals indicate that there are no bolts in that particular, in those particular locations. Yeah. This image was attached to a text message between Boeing team members on September 19th. Yeah. And crucially, the photos are really helpful that the NTSB was thankfully able to source from presumably both Boeing and Spirit Aerosystems that there is a photo showing the door plug, and I quote, immediately before interior restoration. And they have circles around three locations that apparently clearly show the retaining bolts missing and the two vertical movement arrestor bolts and the forward guide upper guide track bolt also missing. There, the aft upper guide track is already covered with insulation. At that point, it was pulled back to complete the necessary rivet work on the right side of the door plug. This was on the left side. So it's just kind of outstanding and really great work that they were able to that Boeing documented so closely that they have photos all along the procedure of the the damaged rivets, the door being opened for the work, the, the door plug being reinserted right before the cabin was restored, as they were saying. So the cabin restoration would be things like putting the insulation back on, the sidewall, putting the seats back on, the wiring for the in-seat power. Once that's done, that's it. The aircraft is ready to go. And at that point, as that door plug is about to be basically we sewn back it up into the aircraft so you can't even see it you can't even know it's there uh, those bolts are not there and that is the very very big question of why are those bolts not there and, and john ostrauer has a, a very good write-up about the anatomy of this very situation that the ntsb has confirmed and that was john's article i believe was inspired by the anonymous comment on liam news's blog weeks ago at this point that really indicated that there was a massive and still is a massive communication breakdown between boeing and spirit aerosystems how they use different systems systems don't talk to each other things are happening out of sync they're happening after the aircraft is brought out of the hangar out of sequence with other items and the worst case scenario happened here was where the bolts just didn't get put back in, presumably. That is that is what the NTSB's investigation so far doesn't conclude. They are not concluding anything, but it is strongly suggesting that Boeing forgot to put the bolts back in. And honestly, if the bolts were never there, I'm quite shocked that this door plug remained in place for as long as it did. And thankfully, it wiggled its way off the airframe at uh, one of the least bad times for it to be doing that in the air. Yeah. The preliminary report paints a picture that is already not great about the workmanship that 
happens between Spirit and Boeing. And I can only assume that the focus moving forward is going to be a lot on what just Jason just talked about, is how Boeing and Spirit systems and personnel talk to each other and work together. How do they make sure that they're speaking the same language? Because if they're not, apparently bolts don't get put back onto door plugs. Yeah. Where are the bolts is, I think, a very valid question. It's not helped here by Spirit Aerosystems having to do the work and Boeing having to do some other work to enable Spirit to do that work. So you have two different sets of people doing two different tasks and two different systems, presumably talking to each other since we have photos, which, which is good. So there's some sort of communication, but uh, apparently it is not enough. And now that we know almost definitively that the bolts were never installed. They were missing because they weren't there. The aircraft left the factory and was delivered without the bolts. It really, and I think this is going under the radar a bit right now, it raises the question of why were there so many other aircraft with so many loose bolts? So those were almost discovered by accident at this point. There wasn't an issue with loose bolts on this aircraft because there weren't any bolts to be loose. So in the dozens of aircraft that Alaska and United inspected, they were finding loose bolts on these aircraft, which is a whole other manufacturing problem that this NTSB investigation may look at. But this investigation is not centered around that. But there damn well better be another one because that, that seems to be a whole other problem. I can't speak for the NTSB, but it seems to me that an expanded scope of inquiry, which they did not rule out in any way, shape, or form, would be warranted here to understand what processes are going into these, we'll stick with the Boeing term, quality escapes, and how those can be nipped once and for all, and, and can the NTSB make any safety recommendations? It's scary when you think about it this way. I think it's in an even worse scenario here where the bolts were just straight up missing. They weren't loose. They didn't become loose over time. They didn't break free. They just weren't there. So the whole situation with other bolts being loose is just – there is a bigger production quality issue happening at Spirit and Boeing at this point. This is just the red herring or I guess or the straw that breaks the camel's back because there is something very rotten going on on the assembly line of the 7-3. And thankfully, this particular issue reared its head in a way that didn't injure anyone, but this is not good. I don't know where Boeing goes from here, but I hope the NTSB and I assume they will. I, I hope they look further into this because bolts being missing and bolts being loose are, are two very different situations. Speaking of loose bolts, an update on the 737-9 MAX fleet. 97% of all of the mid-cabin exit door plug bearing aircraft have re-entered service. All but one of United's aircraft are back in service, and Alaska still has five out of service. Turkish, Copa, and Aeromexico have all returned their entire MAX 9 fleets to service. So just six more planes to go. All right. They're getting there. Almost done. I guess all eyes will be on the accident aircraft to see when that gets put into back into service. Indeed. Might be a little while. Might be a while. Might be a while. Yeah. Yeah. It wasn't really much damage to it, but going to be a while. We'll keep it on the ground for a minute. Speaking elsewhere of 737 MAX aircraft, 
Jason, I'm sorry, I'm going to go a little out of order here. Let's stick with spirit and problems, and then we'll back our way into Mike Whitaker's testimony in front of Congress this week. There's another issue with the 737 MAX. 50 aircraft that are currently undelivered have been flagged for nonconformance. Rivet holes on the fuselages, quote, may not have been drilled exactly to our requirements, says Boeing. That means it's a spirit problem. They were alerted to the problem by spirit of the issue, and this could delay some, quote, near-term 737 deliveries. What else is new? It's hard to keep talking about this topic because it's just something else every day. It's, it's the same thing repeating itself, just with a different particular. So all that to say that FAA Chief Michael Whitaker was in front of Congress this week and said, I need more people. They need more inspectors. They need more, quote, boots on the ground. We don't have that many inspectors on the aircraft certification side of the house. Perhaps that might be some appropriations that Congress wants to lay out. Yeah, that would be pretty good. I can't find the exact quote right now, but I think at some point he did say that the FAA is not Boeing's quality assurance division. It shouldn't be in that position. You shouldn't have to have an FAA safety inspector looking over the shoulder of every Boeing employee to make sure that they tighten every bolt and every bolt is in the place it should be and every hole is drilled correctly and everything is here and everything is there. You shouldn't need an army of inspectors doing this. I have to wonder how EASA does it with with Airbus. What's the ratio of inspectors to workers over there in the, the France and Germany assembly lines? I would love to know that. That's a great question. We know the numbers at the FAA. So we know it's about two dozen on site with Boeing. Not a whole lot. And half a dozen at Spirit. So two and a half dozen, call it three dozen, because about two dozen could mean, you know, a few more than two dozen. That's not a lot of folks. No. And again, I don't know where the exact quote is, but somebody somebody said like that's barely enough people to manage the restaurants at the Boeing facilities to quality assure that the food is being produced right for their own people. So it's just not a lot of people. No. The quote is, that's not enough people to monitor the restaurant operations at the site, said Ed Pearson, a former senior Boeing production manager who raised concerns about the quality problems, the 737 factory after the crashes. That comes from an Andrew Tangell story in the Wall Street Journal. There you go. It's an interesting point. Yeah. I mean, FAA wants more people and I would think that that Congress I mean, would want to get the FAA could use a lot more people in probably everything. It just does, in so. everything, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. One of the big questions right now is the delegated authority that we've talked about in the past. This was in in regards to the Max, generally speaking, and then we've talked about it also in the in context of seven eight seven. So the FAA has something called the organization designation authorization process, which allows Boeing to create in-house regulators of their own and then certify that their own aircraft are safe. The FAA hasn't entirely revoked this, though it has in the past updated how it deals with Boeing's ODA. MITRE, which is an aviation research organization, company, entity, is currently researching what the FAA can do as far as Boeing's 
designation authorization. So that'll be interesting to see what decision the FAA takes based on that study when it's completed, whether or not the FAA revokes that entirely or or modifies it even more. That will be a very interesting thing that I'm going to be following closely because taking the ODA away is, is basically- How do you put it? Yeah, I'm, I'm having trouble coming up with a, a good analogy here. It's basically taking away any confidence that the FAA has in Boeing to produce a quality airplane without someone staring over its shoulder the entire time. Which is just not practical. I, I don't think anyone wants that, and it shouldn't be necessary. I agree it should not be necessary, but we'll see if it ends up being necessary. Jason, let's go international, shall okay. we? Okay, okay. Should we go to Russia? Sure. What's going on there? <laughs> nothing. Nothing much. But interestingly enough, the TU-214 is now an international aircraft. I would say it's now back in, in commercial service outright because yes. I don't think it was in commercial service at all before like last year. It was used by the, the Russian government quite a bit as VIP transport and military aircraft, but now it is, I think, now back in commercial service outright, let alone international service. Yes. Red Wings has it back in service, and they are taking it to Armenia, but they're also going to take it to Georgia and Tel Aviv eventually. So this is a bit of an interesting development. You still have to fly it back to Russia, so not really a an easy trip to manage at the moment, but an interesting thing to see that that is what's happening and they're finding planes wherever they can. Red Wings is also going to add back, according to the Flight Global article that I'm looking at at the moment, the TU-204. All right. Okay. Yeah. If you're not familiar, these are basically the Russian version of the 757. They are, I think, late 80s aircraft, if I'm not mistaken. As I said, they are mostly in service for government operations at this point. But the first flight of the TU-204 is January 2nd, 1989. So very similar vintage of the 757. And what would you know? It looks just like a 757. Huh, so imagine that. No surprise there. But the TU-214 is, I think, an updated variant of the TU-204, which they are still making today, unexpectedly, I guess, kind of expectedly. They're not exactly making them in great numbers, I would say. But if this Wikipedia article is to be trusted, it was in production and when without skipping a year all the way through 2018. In 2019, there were none produced. But in 2020, it was ramped back up. It will be ramped back up considerably more in the near future since Russian airlines can't buy anything else at this point. So it, it's back. It's back. Apparently, the interior was refurbished. No idea what it looked like beforehand or after the fact. It's an, an all-economy layout. But they're doing this because it increases capacity. They are currently limited basically just to the Sukhoi Superjet, which nobody wants to be on. Nobody wants to operate. It's too small. It's only like 99 passengers or something like that. So the TU-214 is a much higher capacity aircraft for an airline that's probably in dire need of capacity. Indeed. Speaking of airlines in dire need of capacity, Indigo actually made money last year. 
despite having more than 70, 70 Pratt & Whitney powered A320 Neo family aircraft sitting around collecting dust. Which is outrageous. Indigo has more aircraft grounded than most airlines have in their entire fleet. Like there aren't a ton of airlines that have more than 70 aircraft. And here we have Indigo with a mid-70s numbers of aircraft out of service today out of a total fleet of 360. So that's like, that's a huge proportion of its fleet. Yeah. I mean, it just boggles my mind how many aircraft they can have sitting around. I mean, they're getting compensation from Pratt & Whitney because of the problems. But it's just, wow. Yeah. I mean, maybe they're helped by other Indian airlines not surviving the very same thing or not being around at all anymore. So it is true that there are fewer airlines to choose from in India than there were just a few years ago. But in a sector of the world that is growing so quickly and has such a demand for flights to have such a huge percentage of its fleet out of service is just crazy. And then it isn't changing anytime soon. They're hopeful that the situation will start to get better a couple of quarters from now. So the subtext there is don't expect a change this year. A podcast listener wrote in this week with some very interesting information about Indigo. And I hadn't seen this. And so I'm running some data now. So it'll hopefully be in the show notes, a link in the show notes by the time the podcast comes out on Friday. Indigo is wet leasing 737s from Qatar. And mm. they're doing this Basically, the argument is they're doing this because they don't want to concede any capacity to Air India or Akasa. Yeah. The market is so strong. This is they're not like, the we, time. We need any yeah. plane we can get. And remember, this is after Indigo had already inducted some triple sevens that it has taken on from, I think, Turkish some like super high density triple sevens to operate massive amount of capacity with that they uh, I mean that's quite a number of A320 flights that you have to fill up for a triple seven. These aircraft have 531 seats on board. So in comparison, a little 737 Max is like who cares almost. I mean, it's something. They care enough to do it. <laughs> They care enough to do it. And if I were an Indigo passenger, I would be quite happy to end up on one of those Qatar 73s. That's probably a much nicer experience on board, I'd have to say. Maybe. Maybe. So, yeah, I mean, that's just the ground. I mean, we're going to dig into this a lot more. And by we, I don't necessarily mean Jason and I, because I don't think Jason wants to deal with the numbers. But as far as Flight Radar 24 goes, we're going to dig into this a lot more because this is just such a fascinating use of data to find out what is happening with the A320neo fleets at various airlines and how they're being operated. Because Indigo's just fascinating whiz, the number of routes that they've had to cut because of the engine issues. I mean, it's changing the landscape between kind of the low-cost carriers and how they're operating because of these engine issues. It's just a real fascinating story to me. Yeah, but you know who doesn't have any time for these engine issues, doesn't want to deal with it, even though they've already dealt with it, and they're just going to get rid of them entirely. You know who I'm talking about? I do. You do. But why don't you tell the people I'll who tell are everyone else. to the podcast? It's Egypt Air, who is a relatively recent operator of the Airbus A220-300, who recently said, you know what? 
no, we don't want these. You can have them back. So they went back to their leasing company, Azora, who I am sure will have no problems placing these because apparently, according to this Flight Global article, these aircraft have already been freshly overhauled by Pratt & Whitney. So these should have mint engines ready to go. Every rare breed of A220 with with engines that are apparently good to go. And Egypt Air just says, ah, you know, we've got our attention elsewhere on a a fleet of other new wide bodies coming. So we, we don't really need these. So that's an unexpected twist. I thought that was a very interesting kind of reasoning or rationale why they were getting rid of them. Because getting rid of the A220s opens them up for a wide bar. I, I don't get that. No, I don't really understand it, but I'm sure they have their reasons. Some people explained to me that they have a lot of five plus minus hour flights in their network. Should they be shifted to A330s that are going to be replaced by 350s, just operate them on 73s? Maybe they just don't really have a place in their fleet. Maybe they're just not the right size aircraft for the missions that Egypt Air operates this. And they just came to that realization a little too late. But I'm sure they'll get a nice offer from the leasing company. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure I'm sure Azor is not upset about that at all. I'm sure they're actually quite pleased. Speaking of being pleased, the European Commission is pleased that JetBlue has its Amsterdam slots. At least for one more season. At least for one more season. Well, based on what they've said, So far, it sounds like they'll find a way to work it out. The European Commission was very concerned that competition among and against the big three joint ventures that operate hub-to-hub routes out of Amsterdam. So basically, there's a One World joint venture, there's a SkyTeam joint venture, and a Star Alliance joint venture that all don't compete on flights hub to hub, meaning those joint ventures can effectively price fix collude just, and just price call it fix what it is. Yeah, their flights. And so you have entrants like JetBlue, which wants to undercut all of those airlines on price, but can't because Amsterdam's a slot control airport. JetBlue had complained about that and then been given slots that were terrible. What do they call them? Not commercially viable. Commercially unviable or something along those lines. So that has changed. And now the European Commission says, yeah, we're happy about that. And I'm sure the joint ventures are also slightly pleased that they don't have to deal with the European Commission being upset with them. Yeah, everybody wins in this situation. And we also want to welcome back Marty St. George to JetBlue. Marty is rejoining JetBlue from LATAM. He was at JetBlue for a long, long time. 2006 to 2019, I think, a long time. He worked his way up to chief commercial officer at JetBlue, then left for a number of consulting gigs, was leading Norwegian Air Shuttle's commercial arm for a while, then ended up at LATAM and is now going to be back at JetBlue at the end of February. I say all this because Marty is if not the most approachable and plain-spoken airline executive I've ever come across, he's in like the top three. And I don't mean outspoken. I don't mean Akbar Bakker. I don't mean Sir Tim Clark, but plain-spoken. Like He explains how things work very clearly and doesn't do so through a lens that is necessarily as rosy as possible for the airline he is currently running. Yeah. He tells you like it is. 
It's very unusual for us to cover any sort of airline executive shifting, especially if it's not at like the CEO level, or we might talk about it. But Marty St. George, when the news came out this morning, there was pretty much universal reaction on the social media is that, hey, this is great and unexpected. It didn't see it coming. I'm happy for him. I'm happy for JetBlue. And, and as I put it this morning, I think this brings JetBlue to the official end of it's like, what are you even doing with your life mid-20s segment of your life? Like JetBlue is in its <laughs> mid-20s. Like It was out there trying to figure out what the hell it wanted to do when it grew up. <laughs> It tried to get married to American Airlines. That didn't work out. They annulled that. And then they tried going to Europe. And that's kind of working out, but it's a distraction. Like, is, is it really profitable? Is it what JetBlue needs to do? Probably not. JetBlue needs to focus on its core strengths here in the Northeast. And they know it now. Their new CEO knows it. And signaling really well that they know it by bringing back Marty because he was a higher up in the management for many years of JetBlue's success. So, it's exciting. This is a positive sign for an airline that has not had much positive science to talk about for quite a while. No, no. It's, I think, good news all around. I forgot to mention Spirit even. Like, how did I forget that? <laughs> We've all blocked it from our brains. Man. Oh, speaking of Spirit, we should mention that the appeal, Spirit's appeal will be heard in June. Or Spirit and JetBlue's appeal, such as it is, will be heard in June. Which is problematic. <laughs> well... There's that. There is that. And I say it's problematic, I believe, because if, if the deal's not done or something like that by June, they could call off the deal. Or I think Spirit could call it off and claim some sort of massive termination fee. Not quite sure about that, but I believe that's why JetBlue petitioned to accelerate the appeal of that, which did not get accelerated as much as they wanted it to be. So we'll see what happens there. I think we all know what's going to happen there. None of us knew what was going to happen to an Avion Express aircraft. But it was fun to watch. Yeah, I'm sure it was even more fun from inside the aircraft because you'd be <laughs> wondering what the what was even going on, Ian, what happened? So this was an Avion Express flight A320 operating from Milan to Vilnius. One of those I love the fact that it was an all white A320 made it even better. Almost like an art project. Almost like an art project, because what happened is the aircraft skidded off the runway during its landing rollout and went pretty far into the mud, into the grass, crossed over a taxiway, stopped, and then they called Joe Patron and they just powered back onto the runway and taxied to the gate. Yeah. <laughs> there is video. Of this happening, there's there are video, still photographs. Photos. Oh, it's the best. You see, unfortunately, the picture was photobombed by a bird. Actually, may, may, not unfortunately, maybe even better, but you can see the aircraft clearly not on any paved surface. The spoilers are up. There is just dirt, rocks, debris flying everywhere with the nose of the aircraft poking through a layer of dust. And then they just kept on going to the stand. Uh, very, I would say, questionable decision that the aircraft is covered in stuff, dirt, mud. There was damage to the underbelly of the aircraft, so it's not like it was just a cosmetic thing, but they, they just kept going. Not knowing if there was damage to the, the engines or the turbine blades or anything, that they just kept going. Thankfully, everything was fine, but I don't think that aircraft is going to go anywhere for a little bit. It's scheduled to be back in service on Saturday. 
yeah, we'll, we'll check back and see if that actually happens. <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll see if that happens. So it went off the runway at approximately 75 knots. That's pretty fast. <laughs> yep. Is going through the grass, slowing, obviously, through, you know, this is what's crazy to me. It went over the taxiway at 38 knots. Mm, bumpy ride. Bumpy, bumpy ride. So then they Wait. stop and then they they decide that, you know, no, okay, let's keep going. And we'll yeah. just power back and right and onto the, the runway. The video captures the whole taxi in and boy, were they dead on that center line when they were taxiing into the ramp. They were accurate as they could be past that point. The, the damage is done, but yeah, they, they, were, they were right on that Might yellow line. Might as well line. make it look good. Yeah. Oh, man. Oh, Let's stay in the neighborhood and step on the scale, shall we? Finnair is not... I should clarify. Finnair is politely requesting that passengers be weighed to collect data on the average weight of passengers and their carry-on baggage for new calculations for aircraft weight and balance. Hmm. That's unusual. Typically, when you hear about passengers being weighed, it's because you're about to get on like a little Britain-Norman B&2-Islander right, to, right. to some nice exotic island, not when you're boarding your A350 to Heathrow. So since 2018, Finnair has used average weights to determine based on its own measurements. But authorities require these figures to be updated every five years. With previous measurements having been taken in 2017 and 2018, it is, quote, now time to collect updated data. So yeah, they're going to be weighing passengers with passengers that opt in to the, the volunteer. They don't ask for personal data, but the total weight and the customer and the carry-on baggage, customer's age, gender, and travel class are recorded. No information is collected that would allow participants to be identified. All right. So there you go. That's interesting. I don't know if I've ever heard it happen here in the US. I believe the FAA is looking or did update those numbers up from 170 pounds to 190 pounds for the average passenger. I think that goes up in the winter because people bring extra coats. Yeah, and, they, and they add five pounds in the stuff. winter. Yeah. yeah, exactly. But the numbers are pretty, pretty unrealistic given the average weight of a typical American where so many Americans are obese. Unfortunately, the numbers don't really work. But I've never heard of any sort of campaign by the FAA to actually weigh passengers and figure out a new more realistic average. I don't think the airlines would take kindly to that because I, I don't think they would like the numbers that come out of it. Well, I think what's interesting is, is that the so the FAA uses numbers based on the CDC's data collection. And then they kind of guesstimate cabin baggage. And I'm not sure exactly where that figure comes from, having focusing on the Finnair thing, but that would be something that I think we should look into to see maybe we can conduct our own experiments. Yeah, sure. Just head out to the airport and anyone go into TSA, just say, can I weigh you? Yeah. Yeah. What could possibly go wrong? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It would be fine. It would be fine. Yep. Yep. A story that is almost not worth discussing because it's just that time of the year. Lufthansa's on strike again. This is like the ninth time in the past six but days. It's not that time of year. That time of year is usually in the high season, in the middle of the summer, where the impact is actually the greatest. I do 
feel like the, the number of strikes and the frequency of strikes we've seen in 2024 already, it feels way up to me. I don't have any empirical numbers to back that up, but we've seen Finnair basically shut down for a day, multiple strikes at Lufthansa, not just Lufthansa, but also the ground workers. I think it's mostly at basically every major German airport taking out Lufthansa for days. There's been Deutsche Bahn strikes, train strikes, all sorts of manners. It just feels like it, it's way worse and way earlier than usual and with no notice. Sometimes you have pretty good advance notice that like, oh, don't fly four and a half weeks from today because there's going to be a strike. These strikes are happening with extremely little notice. When I was in Europe just a couple of weeks ago, when we were in, not Rotterdam, in Antwerp. Antwerp, thank you. Brussels Airlines pilots went on a wildcat strike. There was no notice whatsoever, and that crippled the airline for the entire day. They basically had no operations at all. That to me is unusual. Something has changed and strikes are becoming more frequent, more impactful with less notice, which is not a good trend. So watch out for that. I don't know. We talk about this now to say, hey, it's only February. Keep an eye on your summer travel plans. Yeah. And even if you do keep an eye on it, good luck. <laughs> uh, there's, there's not much you can yeah. do. Yeah. Just, just good luck. And we close the show with the rollout of updated cabins including more power on Southwest Airlines? Yeah, strange. So what? Brian Summers of the Airline Observer, I don't know if we've ever had him on the podcast, had a really- Not yet. Really clairvoyant quote, just a few days, three days ahead of this massive announcement. He had said, and I quote, is Southwest stubborn or perhaps consistently behind the times by choice? Maybe he knew this was coming. He has a good number of industry contacts. He knows people, but maybe he didn't, and he just called it. But three days later, Southwest announced it'll install USB A and C power outlets on all of its 737 Max and 737 NG, the 800. This is the variant. big part of the announcement. Yeah. This is hundreds and hundreds of aircraft and tablet holders, which will come to the max deliveries, I think. But USB ports on the 800s, that's a big deal. This is an airline that just maybe a year ago, I don't think you ever would have expected that, but it's also an airline that flies Transcon, flies six, seven-hour flights. If the conditions are wrong, it flies to Hawaii, not quite Trans-Pacific, but as far as you're going to get on a 7-3 nonstop, maybe even a red-eye flight in the near future. Who knows? But it, it's a Ooh. big to have <laughs> a, a low, yeah, I know, but a low-cost carrier like Southwest commit to hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of aircraft with USB power. I mean, maybe it gives hope. As of today, that's 433 planes. That's a lot of planes, but maybe it gives hope for the easy jets and, and God forbid the Ryanairs. No, 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 no. Hold your tongue. I don't want to get an email from Michael O'Leary calling us out of our gourds. There's no way. There's no way. Because you would have to be able to, with a straight face, make the argument that Southwest Airlines is a low-cost carrier. And if anyone, anyone on the face of the planet Ooh, wants to come on this podcast point. and make a serious argument to me that Southwest Airlines is in fact a low-cost carrier, I will let you do that. Email us at podcast.fr24.com, and you are more than welcome to pull up a microphone and make that case. They're low cost at heart. How about that? And this no, has no. been episode 254 <laughs> of Talk. Get out of here, Jason. Just get out. Uh, uh, and what an episode it was.
That was that fun. Was and I hope you enjoyed listening. Thank you so very much. We appreciate you. If you've made it this far, a small apology. For whatever reason, Spotify was having a bit of trouble getting the feed ingested last week. We hope that's solved for this week. But if it's not, apologies in advance. And know that you can listen to this podcast wherever you find your podcasts, including Spotify eventually, I guess. But it's always available first and foremost on our website. So you can go to the blog to find the latest episode all the time. This has been episode 254 of AvTalk. I am Ian Pechnik here as always with Jason Urbanowitz. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.